Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So we are still on vacation, but uh, lucky for us, we have a second episode on Stanley, the self-driving car, which we're going to be bringing uh, right now. Yep. So for those of you who tuned in last week, you should have gotten a little bit of an introduction to Stanley, the first self-driving car. Uh, If not, that's maybe one you want to go back and take a quick listen to, but um, this is a little bit more of a technical explanation. So if that's up your alley, you'll probably still be able to follow a lot of the the interesting technical diversions that we will take you through here. So uh, we thought this stuff was really cool. It's the technology that underpins the first self-driving car, which is, I think, one of the coolest things you can think about. Um, we hope you like it too. Enjoy. Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Hey, so in the last episode, we were talking about a self-driving car named Stanley. Stanley. And this is part two. So if you did not listen to part one of our episode about Stanley, go, go catch back it. What and are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing waiting here? <laughs> uh, you are listening to Linear Digressions. Do you want to give a quick recap? Yeah. So Stanley, the self-driving car is what one might call the first self-driving car. This was about 10, a little more than 10 years ago now. So 2005, 2006. And what had happened was there was a competition that was being hosted by DARPA. And the goal was to have a self-driving car that could drive 140 miles by itself through the desert without veering off course, without hitting any obstacles, without breaking any speed limits. And there were a bunch of different research groups that entered. Whoever could do this the fastest was declared the winner. And the winner was Stanley. Um, And as a a bit of a personal aside, the leader of the Stanley project uh, is a a friend of the pod, you might say, uh, Sebastian Thrun, who was our boss when we worked at Udacity a couple years ago. And I actually had the pleasure of working with him pretty closely on the machine learning course. And in the course of that, got to uh, hear some of these Stanley stories firsthand. Um, But anyway, so we wanted to share with all of you how Stanley was actually originally put together and how uh, Sebastian's team won this uh, this race through the desert. And a lot of this information comes from the aforementioned 30-page paper about Stanley and this whole process. Yeah, and we'll link to that on the website. It's, it's a pretty nice paper that has a lot of the details. But in the last episode, we talked about a little bit, some intro to self-driving cars and how the DARPA race in particular is special because it's kind of this solo race through the desert. It's not like there's traffic or weather or anything like that that you have to deal with. But now let's talk about what Stanley, how Stanley was actually put together and how it like accomplished all the things it had to do. So how do you actually go about, or rather I should say, how did they go about building this particular self-driving car. I mean, like when I was, when I was a kid, I was always thinking about what if you wanted to make a car car drive itself? Like, and I was thinking about, about it very imperatively as a, as a kid who was interested in programming, like, well, you need to build some component that understands the lines and, you know, but if you've listened to this podcast at all, you'll know that a lot of machine learning doesn't quite work like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think a good place to start is actually with the hardware in terms of like what was physically going into Stanley. So Stanley was a Volkswagen Touareg. So it's like kind of a, your standard, like four by four vehicle. And then there were a couple specific mods that they had to make. So the first is that there's a roof rack that was mounted on top of Stanley that had a camera and it had some LIDAR and radar sensors. So LIDAR is like radar, but with lasers. Um, so that's a way of basically detecting when there's objects in your path and that's, figuring that's out like what... That's like 
terrain is uh, drivable because that's actually something Stanley has to figure out. That's the the thing that you'll see on top of self-driving cars that's spinning, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think so. They had to figure out how to build those sensors and then they mount them on the top of the car. Uh, There's a GPS device that's in there. So one of the things that DARPA gives you uh, a couple hours before the race is the actual race course that you're supposed to follow. And that contains, among other things, a bunch of GPS points and and the order in which you're supposed to hit them. And so if you were to string those together, you have basically the route. Um, so that can be something that you can use GPS to try to follow and make sure that you're as much as possible following those um, those points. And then there's also some switches that the DARPA personnel had required to be in all the cars. So these are things like a, a way for the DARPA personnel to manually pause a car if, let's say, there's another car that's about to overtake it, that sort of thing. There were a bunch of computers in the trunk of the car. There was some, uh, the AC ventilation was routed to the back of the car to cool the computers. So there was no, practically speaking, there was no AC in the cabin, which was fine because there wouldn't be a human in the cabin anyway. And then the last point, which is pretty important to understand, is that throughout all of the modifications, Stanley was always drivable by a human. So there were lots of testing runs, and Stanley, even today, as far as I'm aware, is still technically street legal. So even if all the self-driving you know, apparatuses in there and Stanley is even in autonomous mode, if there's a person who's sitting in the driver's seat, then with the push of a button, they can switch it back to manual control. And then it's just like a regular car, which so, is a really important way to like be able to debug it and to give it training runs and things like that. Ah, uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask is like, if you have a self-driving car and you're not allowed to have any human intervention during the competition, why does, why does it need to be drivable by a human? But it seems that that's one of the ways that you get training data. Yep. Yep. So they were driving this car all all through the desert uh, for many, many months before uh, before the competition. And so obviously you have to be able to drive it <laughs> in order to drive it. So that's the hardware. But as we mentioned in the last episode, this competition was primarily a software exercise, not really a hardware one. So once you have the information from these sensors coming in, then the real problem is kind of reconstructing that information into an idea of what's going on and then making decisions based on what Stanley sees around it. So in terms of the software systems, there were six major components. The first is what they call the sensor interface layer. So this is the software that actually reads in the data from those sensors and reconstructs it into you know, something that can then something that's a little bit higher level and can be passed off to the next layer, which is what's called the perception layer. So the idea here is that this is the software layer where you take those signals from your sensors and you start to reconstruct them into concepts, heuristically speaking. So you take information from your LiDAR sensors, that's your sensor perception layer, or that's your sensor interface layer. And then your perception layer is saying, oh, based on these sen- these readings I just saw, I think there's a rock in front of me. Then the next thing is the control layer. So the control layer might be something like, there's a rock in front of me, I should... I need to swerve now, or I need to take some kind of evasive action because I don't want to hit the rock. There's the vehicle interface layer. So once I've the car has quote unquote made the decision to avoid this rock, then you need to actually execute that decision by turning the steering wheel and then making sure that you know the wheels are turning in the way that you think they're turning and making sure that like the gyroscopes are not showing you falling off the side of the road and um, you know actually executing the maneuvers that you have in mind. There's the user interface layer, which is giving feedback to any users who are 
either remote or who might be reading the logs later. Maybe there are people who are in the car, so giving them the information that they need on the state of the system. And then the last is the global services layer. So this is just kind of making sure that everything is still running properly, that nothing needs to be power cycled, that the computers aren't overheating, you know, some of this stuff that's just monitoring the overall system health. Now, from a system design perspective, the reason that you want to split these things up into these different layers is so that way you can work on a particular subsystem without having to think about any of the other stuff that's abstracted away. So if you're working on the perception layer, for example, you're not thinking about the intricacies of the way that the LiDAR system is working or any you know, drift correction you have to do or any of that stuff. That's all completely abstracted away from you, and you can just you know, uh, trust that whatever you're getting is good. Or you can at least trust that you're going to interact with it in a very specific, particular way. That would be called an API, the way that you have your different layers interact with each other. It also allows for much better testability. So the sensor people, the people working on the, the sensors and the sensor software, can build their system completely in isolation from all the rest of the, the self-driving car. Um, and all the other software. And if you have those modules decoupled well, then everyone can kind of work on their individual piece without stepping on anyone else's toes. And then you've got these decoupled modules that you can put together and, uh, and create a really cool system out of it with these abstractions in place so you can develop it better and maintain it better and uh, build on it later on better. Yeah, for sure. It's a big exercise in divide and conquer. And as we get into some of these specific problems that that they had to solve here, you'll see how many of these problems build upon each other. So you sort of have these layers of of abstraction that are getting more and more complex and require more and more uh, sophistication to handle. But each of them has fairly clear interfaces, like within a certain layer, this is just the single problem that we're trying to solve. And then once we arrive at an answer, we pass along that answer to the next step and then it takes that it takes that input and does something else. So anyway, so let's get into that. The first thing that you have to do is have what's called the vehicle state estimation. And this is sometimes called the pose in in this paper. And so this is a, a series of measurements that you get primarily from your sensors and it's telling you basically like where is the car? Which way is it pointing? Is it going fast? Is it going slow? So this is position, velocity, orientation, acceleration and gyroscope movements. Okay. And the reason this is important, so there are GPS measurements along the route of where you're supposed to be. So if you were to just follow those GPS measurements, hypothetically, it should deliver you safely to the finish line. Um, But in practice, GPS can slightly be off sometimes by up to maybe a meter or so. That can sometimes be a big problem if you're on, say, like a treacherous mountain road. Yeah, I mean, imagine that you are walking somewhere and you're looking down at your phone and you're just kind of following your your GPS self on the map. You're not paying attention to any sidewalks or any of that kind of stuff. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. So the GPS was used pretty heavily to optimize the route slightly and to make slightly longer term decisions. But occasionally, if there's a GPS outage, then what Stanley would do is it would just slow down and it would use the onboard sensors to keep track of its own you know, sort of internal mental map of where it is um, and wait for the GPS to come back up. And then if it has wandered off course, it'll make a correction. So these sensors are actually really important because without the GPS, there's a good chance that it would get lost. 
That's very cool. So it's kind of a a where am I in the world, but with redundancy because you don't you never know if you're going to lose a sense. Yep. Okay. So now we have the idea that Stanley has GPS information most of the time about approximately where it is, and also pose information about the velocity, the acceleration, the orientation, things like that. Now the next question is you want to figure out what the terrain is around you. And so this has a couple components to it. Number one is that you want to use that information to help you stay on the road. Um, Because again, the GPS isn't going to be perfect. Even if the road is supposed to be fairly clear, there might be, say, a rock in the road or something like that, that you want to be able to recognize and move around, even if, you know, like that, that might not be in the GPS, that there's just a big rock there, but you need to deal with it anyway. So this is where the LIDAR comes in. This is sort of like a like a radar, but with lasers. Uh, and so the idea here is that you have five lasers that are sitting on the roof racks, and each of them is generating almost 200 point estimates of the terrain around you, and sort of what are all, if I were to think of it as a big cloud of points that I'm moving through, and those points are sort of touching the surrounding space. In particular, the thing I'm interested in for this this point cloud that's kind of moving along in front of my car and telling it what's safe terrain and what's not. I want each of those points as much as possible to be something that I know is either an obstacle, in which case I want to avoid it. It can be clear terrain, in which case it's safe for driving, or it can be unknown um, if I don't have enough information. And so in particular, I say an obstacle is when I see two points that are very close to each other and where there's a large vertical distance in between them. So that's indicating that there's basically something that's like coming up out of the road and I want to avoid it. I say that's what an obstacle is. And then you have many different points they're sort of moving through. And so you can have not just each single point that I'm thinking about, but how that point then maps onto you have like bunches of terrain uh, that you're classifying potentially many different points altogether. One of the things that's interesting about this terrain classification is it at first it didn't work particularly well. Um, almost 13% of drivable terrain was being classified as not drivable. And that was because because your lasers are sitting on top of your car and they're kind of pointing maybe 20 or 30 meters out in front of you. There's potentially, if there's a small error in, let's say, the angle that you're measuring uh, for the car's pose, so you think it's like ever so slightly pointed up or pointed down relative to how it is, then Mm. that error gets kind of like extrapolated forward and it becomes bigger as it's like going forward. And so these small errors in the pose, if you have just a small mismeasurement of your orientation or your velocity or whatever, can translate into large errors on what you think the terrain is in front of you. And this was actually a pretty big problem. Now, (laughs) a big problem to the point where there were big chunks of the road that was clearly when you look at it by eye was just perfectly fine road. But Stanley was showing through the, some of these user interface layers that it thought that it was a huge obstacle and it'll swerve around it. And that's not something that you want it to do. And when they dug into the data a little bit more, they found that the time between scans, so you have your sort of LIDAR spinning. And so you're getting scans uh, several times a second. Um, the time between those scans fairly strongly correlates with the vertical distance that they were measuring. So there's some kind of relationship 
that you can see it's a probabilistic relationship based on how quickly you're scanning the terrain around you about how certain you are then if there's an obstacle that you see, whether it's a real obstacle. So there's certain types of measurements that you might have very high confidence that they actually are obstacles. And there are other types of measurements where because of the way the car is moving at the time you take the measurement, basically it's a little bit more of a guess. And so what they had to do was write a probabilistic uh, sort of a Markov model basically that says, okay, I'm seeing from the LIDAR that it looks like there's an obstacle in front of me, but I also have this other information about the pose of my car when I took that measurement. And so instead of saying with certainty that there's an object, I'm going to say probabilistically, I think there's an object with some probability. I'm going to take some more measurements that are then going to refine that estimate. And I think about it as this sort of probabilistic exercise instead of just a, a one zero. And so once they had this slightly more sophisticated reconstruction algorithm, and which in particular gave them a chance to gather a little bit more data about certain types of obstacles they were seeing, then they found that this sort of terrain misclassification rate went from 13% to less than 1%. And I think that was really important for them to be able to actually like traverse the roads properly. Right, yeah. You don't want to be swerving around things that don't exist all the time. You do not. Especially if you're trying to go an average of 20 miles per hour, and sometimes you're going slower than that. That's that's kind of speedy. It's funny how, I don't know if you remember like learning how to drive, but 20 miles an hour feels really fast when you're first learning how to drive. I bet it feels that's really, true. really fast when, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I've been in a self-driving car. I was about to say, I bet it feels fast in a self-driving car. I've been in a self-driving car, and we were probably going about 20 miles an hour at the fastest point, and that felt weirdly fast at first. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, I mean, Stanley was learning to drive, so I wonder how Stanley felt. I don't know. You'd have to ask him. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole different question. Indeed. Uh, okay. Now let's go to the second part. So the LiDAR system that we just described works pretty well up to a certain speed, namely about 25 miles an hour. And that's because the LiDAR system can only look a certain distance ahead. So this is kind of the idea, if you've ever driven Mm. on, you know, like a dark mountain road, then you know that there's uh, a speed at which you overdrive your headlights. So your headlights go some distance into the future or into the future, you know, into the the, the distance in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And and 88 miles per hour is the... It's into the future in a certain sense. That's back to the future. Yeah. So the idea is, suppose that your headlights illuminate a rock that's sitting in the road in front of you. And if you're going 10 miles an hour, maybe that gives you plenty of time to stop because your your headlights reach out 100 feet in front of you and that gives right. you, you know, 10 seconds and like that's plenty of time that you can slow down and stop. But if you're going 100 miles an hour, then you only have one second to stop, which is almost certainly not enough time for you to stop the car. Yeah. So that's the idea of overdriving your headlights. I, I like that you said your headlights go a certain distance into the future. Because really, that's that's exactly what it is, right? Uh, that I was not being that profound about it, but um, <laughs> you know, you know what I meant. It felt um. really deep, but um, <laughs> I mean, but like you know, it, it, it's based on your speed. You have a certain amount of of sight into the future. Yeah, and the flip side of that is in the case of Stanley, based on the distance that the lidar sensors can go, you have mm-hmm. a certain amount of speed at which you know where you'll be safe. And in the case of Stanley, that was up to 25 miles an hour or so, uh, the LIDAR will take care of you. And so if you want to go faster than 25 miles an hour, which 
in the end it turns out that you probably want to do, then you need to come up with something else, something that's capable of looking a little bit farther out into the future, out into the distance, if you like. (laughs) Um, that maybe doesn't so, have like all of the advantages that you have for LiDAR, but it does give you enough of a warning, maybe if there's a big rock that's way out yeah. in front of you, that you can make adjustments early enough on that it's not going to be a big problem. So we're not talking about using LiDAR in a different way. We're thinking about a different kind of sensor that can maybe give you a little bit of extra time to slow down so that way you can use LiDAR, which might be a better sensor type for when it's closer. That's right. And so the sensor that they ended up using when they wanted to go fast on the straightaways was actually a camera. It was a color camera. Oh, really? Like an actual camera that a human could look at? Yep. Yep. And so the idea is the camera, the way to think about the camera was was it was primarily used for velocity control. So the camera is going to be looking out into the distance. And it's kind of an interesting exercise how they did the image reconstruction on this. We won't go way into the into the details on this. But the idea is that the camera guesses as to what the road ahead is. And then it looks out into the distance and it says, do we think that there's going to be any weird terrain problems ahead? So it's basically looking for like big stuff that it doesn't necessarily know how to handle, but it, you know, that's the LIDAR's job is to actually figure out if things that look weird are real obstacles that it needs to deal with. But the idea is that the camera is there to say, if there's something strange, slow down the car to below our our 25 miles an hour or whatever, and then let the LIDAR take care of it. So you should really think of it as a velocity control mechanism. Um, And the LIDAR is still doing the primary object detection and stuff like that. It's just figuring out which of those two systems uh, you need to be on and and turning it onto the faster system when you want to go fast. That's interesting. Uh, I was just having a conversation last night uh, with a friend about rods and cones in your eyes. Now, it's not the same in terms of the way it's it's used, I guess, but uh, a lot of times if it's dark, you'll use your peripheral vision, the cones, to, uh, to detect movement and then you'll turn your head and use the rods in the center of your vision to gather information about it. Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. Yeah, that's really similar to what it is. Is It's basically figuring out, you use the one system for the actual work and you use the second system just to figure out when to, when to turn on the first system or turn it off. Yeah. And actually, if you look into how good human eyes actually are, this is a digression, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but our eyeballs are actually really bad sensory, uh, they're really bad sensors. Uh, You have a very, very, very small portion of your vision that you can actually perceive detail in. And the way that you can reconstruct this, this, uh, have this feeling that you can see a lot of detail is because your eyes dart around and bounce around different images or people's faces or whatever. And then you can uh, kind of construct that detail in your brain, but you're not actually seeing all of it ever at the same time. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's it's terrifying if you make that realization. So uh, <laughs> it's like, wow, I am not perceiving the world as well as I thought I was. Food for thought. Anyway, um, back to back to lidar and cameras. Yeah, onward and upward. So the next thing was actually moving <laughs> moving on from uh, lidar and cameras a little bit. Um, so the next is figuring out where the road is, um, and so that's kind of a combination of looking for obstacles that are on the side of the road. So the road is the road is clear. Um, there's presumably not going to be anything crazy 
that, you know, you're not going to have a gigantic tree that's fallen across the road or something like that. Um, but there could potentially be, you know, like a basketball sized rock or something like that. That could be trouble. But the sides of the road are just desert. And so that's going to have shrubs and it's going to have rocks and all these things. And so if you're looking for obstacles and you're looking for a pathway that's free of obstacles, um, that'll give you a lot of hints about where the road is. The second thing is that the road, uh, the GPS points that are given to the teams uh, a couple hours before the race starts, those GPS points are nominally going down the middle of the road. And so you're going to have some reconstruction error on where you think you are relative to GPS, you might be off by a few tens of centimeters in some direction. Um, but for the most part, the GPS will also give you a good a second way of making sure that you're on the road and that you know, you're not kind of driving off to the side. So in terms of estimating the properties of the road, uh, the first signal that you're going to get is from your GPS, just making sure that you're actually are, are following the thing that it says you should be following. Uh, you use the LIDAR to look for the edges of the road and to basically uh, make like a Kalman filter type of algorithm that tells you, I think there's edges of the road on either side of here, kind of like reconstructing a curb if you were to be driving down the street. And then the third thing is you use information from your accelerometer to tell you if the car is bouncing around a lot, because although this road is clear, it might not be particularly smooth. And if it's very bumpy, then that's something that you want to slow down for to protect the car and to potentially avoid any, um, you know, losing control of the car if you were to um, hit bumps too fast. So that's interesting. So really, you're kind of getting information about the road in three ways. One, you're looking way off into the distance using your your visual camera. Two, you're looking not so far off into the distance with a lot more resolution using your LiDAR system. And but but then third, you're actually gaining information about the qualities of the road by traversing over it. So you're actually reacting not just to, oh the LiDAR system says it's gonna get bumpy. You're saying, hey, it's getting bumpy. I'm going to slow down. Slow it down. Yeah, exactly. The next part that I want to talk about is the path planning. So the path planning is actually figuring out the route that Stanley is going to follow. So you have this series of the the GPS points that will nominally take you through the course. If you were to just plug those directly into Stanley, there are a few things that are going to be maybe a little bit less than ideal about it. The first is that the GPS measurements that you make can be a little bit off. And by and large, if it's a very wide road, um, then you have some room for error and it's not that big of a deal. But there are parts of the course that were these kind of windy mountain passes and being a little bit off in that situation is going to be a big problem. So you don't want to rely entirely on your GPS because you need that extra information about the um about the road around you in in some of these trickier situations. The second thing about the GPS points is that there were, I think, a few thousand of them across this 140-mile course. And so you get relatively detailed information about the path, but you can imagine that if a human were driving this path, there are a lot of things that they would do, these little refinements that would make the ride a lot smoother and a lot more optimal. So for example, accelerating uh, nicely or taking banks through curves or things like that. So you don't want to literally just drive from one point to the next because that's not a very smooth way of driving. And a smooth way of driving is generally one where you can go faster and you have to do fewer corrections and things like that. Imagine, you know, some, a very mechanical robot that 
just kind of jerks around a little bit. Uh, the difference between that and like a race car driver who has very smooth motions. As much as possible, we want to allow Stanley to find spots along the route where by deviating slightly from the GPS points, he can chart a much more optimal course and then take things, take the um, the course a little bit faster and in a slightly more refined way. So that's what the path planning is about. So there's a preliminary step of the path planning, which is once you feed these points into Stanley a couple hours before the race starts, it actually does a process of moving through all the different trajectory options and coming up up with the one that it looks like is the most optimal. And then there might be some slight tweaks that Stanley makes um, once it's actually out on the course based on how fast it's going at certain points. Uh, So the idea is that there's a number of different trajectories that you could take that might be slightly different in the way that they approach certain curves or how quickly they accelerate in certain spots or whatever. And then at the time that it actually has to make decisions about how to drive any particular course, Stanley basically looks at those options, figures out which one is going to be, um, is going to give it the best time relative to a set of constraints. Like I have, I'm only going to allow myself to turn with a certain sharpness. I have constraints on how quickly I'm going to accelerate or decelerate. Obviously uh, you want to obey the speed limits and things like that. And then it does sort of this optimization to pick the trajectory that gives it the best time subject to all of those constraints that it has. Cool. So if now Stanley knows which path he wants to take, I imagine there's now the process of taking that path and obviously making adjustments as, as Stanley goes. Uh, I, I assume you just install some hardware to control the steering wheel and the accelerometer and the brake and whatnot, and probably have some sort of a, a calibration or mapping to, to make those relatively easy for the software to control. Yep. So you have your drive-by-wire system, which is the name for basically the hardware that allows the robot to be controlling the steering wheel and the and the accelerator and the brake and things like that. Um, and the way that it actually learns, like, oh, I want to take a turn with these parameters with respect to how tight the turn is going to be and how I'm going to accelerate through it. You know, learning what the actual mechanical settings are on the car, they give it you know, that performance. Um, A lot of that was actually determined through human driving. So they would just, they loaded up the sensor with cars and they sent people out there and they had people drive through various kinds of scenarios um, in ways that were hopefully fairly optimal. (laughs) And then, you know, Stanley would kind of learn by imitation. Um, And so there were a couple places where you'll use some trigonometry here and there and some smoothing functions and stuff like that. It wasn't entirely learning by imitation, but a lot of it was to just kind of nail down the parameters of how you actually control a car once you decide where you want it to go. There's a funny aside. I remember Sebastian telling me this story at some point that when they were out on these training runs, so he's German and he uh, <laughs> drives like a German, so very aggressively sometimes. And and then there was some other lead engineer who, as he tells the story anyway, uh, was a much more conservative driver and was much, much gentler on his cars and didn't accelerate and decelerate and, you know, slam it around in all different directions and whatnot. And that uh, from his his telling of the story is that, you could actually tell who had been driving Stanley most recently because there were these two very distinctive styles of driving uh, that were going into the training. And um, wow. and you could tell which one was which. There was like the easy one and then like the hard one. I don't know. I, I, I would be a little bit surprised if that's 
I don't know. Maybe maybe that's possible that that ended up happening. I like to think that it ended up happening. I think that's a good story. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and so that actually brings us to the the end of the description of kind of Stanley, broadly speaking. So now we have all the information about how Stanley is collecting data, and how it uses that data to reconstruct things like the terrain and any obstacles it has to avoid. And then we skipped over like a detail here and there, but also how then it takes all that input and makes bigger macroscopic decisions about how it's actually going to, you know, race this as a, as a strategic exercise. And so with that, I think we should probably talk about what happened uh, at the race and then we'll call it a day. Yeah, definitely. And if, if us talking about it for half an hour isn't enough, uh, of course, again, there is the link on our website to the paper where you can read even more details. On oh yeah. Lineardigressions.com. Always links to the papers. Yeah. So, uh, race day, what happened? Yeah. So, uh, the first thing that I should point out is prior to race day is actually when all the work happens. Um, and so there were a few things that I think were characteristic of this project and were, uh, good signs, certainly not guarantees that they would win. Um, but a few things that they had nailed down. So the first is that they had an end to end prototype very early on, more than a year before the competition. And so they had the entire system up and running, and then it was an issue of making it work better, which I think is a is a really good way to build something complicated like this. It helps you figure out where the bottlenecks actually are, and then to go about Definitely. making sure that your that your fixes actually work. And the second is, I think this is this is just a, a good way of thinking about how do you solve this big complicated problem? Um, how do you know that you're actually making progress on it? Uh, in particular, because you're probably not out doing big runs in the desert you know, a year before the contest. And so what they said is there as their figure of merit, are we making progress on the project this week was called the mean distance between catastrophic, catastrophic failures. So MDBCF. And so they said a catastrophic failure is a situation in which a human had to intervene, had to take Stanley off of automatic driving and manually correct something. So it was mm-hmm. about to roll off the road. It was about to hit some big rock. It was approaching a, a turn way, way too fast. Every time something like that happened and a human had to intervene, they said that was a, a catastrophic failure. And so what you want to do is you want to increase the number of miles that are uh, incur- occurring between those catastrophic failures and that more and more we'll say progress is that Stanley is able to autonomously you know, handle the stuff that we're throwing at him without us having to intervene. And in fact, the last um, over 400 miles that it drove before the race were um, catastrophic failure free. So it, it had actually wow. uh, driven many thousands of miles um, and the last 400 were spotless, which is probably a good feeling to be going into this 140 mile race. So once it actually gets into the race, it had the second starting position because of some preliminary uh, rounds that they had gone through for who gets to start first. There was a uh, Carnegie Mellon robot that was in front of it. And so, like I said in the last episode, the robots were started five minutes apart. So there's a fair amount of distance in between them, maybe a mile or, or a half mile or so in between them. But since Stanley was doing really well, it started to edge up on the Carnegie Mellon robot that was in front of it a couple times, actually. And so when that happened, the first two times, there were DARPA personnel who were following in their own truck. And there was sort of this remote control pause switch. They were able to pause Stanley. And obviously, they paused the clock as well, too. And so mm-hmm. in that time, the Carnegie Mellon guy keeps going. And and that gap opens up again. 
But then the third time that Stanley uh, came up behind the Carnegie Mellon car, uh, they decided to pause the Carnegie Mellon uh, car and let Stanley pass it. So then they paused Carnegie Mellon, and Stanley then just had to navigate around. Uh, the It was the Carnegie Mellon one, I think, was called Highlander. And so Carnegie Mellon, or Stanley just had to navigate around Highlander like it, like it was a big rock or something. Um, so it exec- a very big rock. <laughs> yeah, so it executed that maneuver. Um, and there are some pictures of it in the paper that you can see. It's, it just looks like two cars passing each other, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Ex- <laughs> Cutting wow. edge stuff here. Um, Seriously, yeah, yeah. Like, this is the most exciting picture of the century. <laughs> and uh, so then uh, Stanley passes Highlander. And because it was the second car to start at this point, it's in front of the, you know, formerly front pace mm-hmm. car. And it's, you know, there's just open road in front of it. Um, so Stanley ended up finishing in six hours, 53 minutes and 58 seconds, which if you do the math is approximately 19 miles per hour, if you average over the entire thing. Um, although there was plenty of variation within it based on the train. And one thing that's worth mentioning is we talked about how the LIDAR, if you were driving by LIDAR only, there's an upper speed limit of 25 miles per hour. Um, and that you have the camera that allows you to go faster than that. And in fact, there were places where they did end up going faster than that, faster than the 25 miles per hour. And I think they they sort of implied in the paper that if 25 miles an hour had remained the speed limit of the car, basically if they didn't have this camera system, then they wouldn't have been able to go fast enough on some of those fast pieces to make up the time. Mm. And there's a good chance, I don't know that they would have loss necessarily but it would have been really close i think then there's a good chance that they might not have won so that camera system um in a lot of ways um, enabled them to go fast enough that they were able to actually uh, beat carnegie mellon wow um and then there were a couple other things that are kind of fun there were some sensor freezes that happened while it was running and so then it saw some uh some phantom objects in the road and it swerved to avoid them. So there's there's a little bit of a funny picture of it just like swerving slightly like off to the off to the side of the road. It wasn't by any means uh anything crazy. Like nobody was ever in any yeah. danger if even if they had been in the car. Obviously there wasn't anybody in the car. Uh, but it's just kinda like, you know, the car just jerks itself randomly. because um, it had a sensor freeze. So that was, I'm sure, very exciting for everyone. And then the last thing that I'll add is that when they went back and they compared the places where Stanley actually chose to go based on the road terrain, the path that it picked, relative to the actual GPS points, they found that the GPS points were sometimes like up to 70 centimeters uh, away from where they ended up going. And the reason that's important is that it means, number one, that Stanley was a, it's, it's an indication that Stanley was optimizing its path a little bit. The second thing is that there was one particularly treacherous mountain pass where Stanley did a really good job of actually hugging the side of the road, um, so staying away from the edge. And if Stanley had been... So it, it stuck to the side by about a meter relative to where it would have been if it had just been in the, in the GPS. Um, if it had been a meter off in the other direction, it probably would have fallen off the cliff. Mm. Um, and so the fact that Stanley was able to navigate those tricky things uh those those tricky kinds of like mountainous trail roads was due only like partly to the gps i'm sure you know the gps gave it 
a rough idea of where it should go. But the actual terrain mapping was really important to its actual mm. success because the GPS, it turns out, was a little bit off um, in ways that could have been a big problem. So it it's, uh, it's a story that kind of has this nice ending, like, oh, they won and they got a couple million dollars and everybody was really happy, except for maybe Highlander, because... You know, I'm sure right. they tried really hard to and whatever. Um, all those second places is, is nothing to sneeze at. And I think they ended up winning the, the next competition the next year. Um, but anyway, the point is there were still, you know, some of these weird little hiccups uh, that were happening even in this fairly straightforward situation where there was no there was no traffic and there was no weather. Yeah, this kind of problem is really interesting because, I mean, obviously, if you're thinking about developing a self-driving car that drives on uh, residential roads and on the freeway and in the desert and in the mountains and the snow and all of this stuff. Obviously, that is an overwhelmingly complicated problem. But even when you when you restrict the problem space really significantly to you're driving in the desert, you don't have acclimat weather, and you know the only thing you're really going to encounter are the occasional rock, it's still one of those problems where the more you dig in, the more complicated and complicated it gets. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.